Well, good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. Last night, my son, who's 13, he says to my wife, he goes, isn't this great, Mom? Right after church on Mother's Day, Spurs play against Golden State. <laughs> she gave him only that look a mom could live, which is, I love you, son, but that is not what we will be doing on Mother's Day. Well, I'm curious, by show of hands, how many of you would like to know God's will for your life? Have you liked to know God's will? I suspected so. As a part-time high school teacher, a grad school teacher, Biola, a speaker, some of the most common questions I get from people of all ages is, what is God's will for my life? Well, this passage we're going to deal with this morning, I think answers that question, but in a way different than we typically expect. In fact, if I think if we understand what the scriptures mean by God's will, it's actually very freeing and liberating for the way that we live. So let's dive in. If, as you'll remember, we're in the book of 1 John. We've been in this a few weeks. 1 John is written by the Apostle John towards the end of his life. He spent years with the church. He saw Jesus in the flesh and is pouring out to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, really, so they have correct doctrine, live rightly, and enjoy fellowship with God and with fellow believers. Now, the passage we're in this morning actually has kind of two sections we're going to kind of look at together. And uh, it's in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, if you want to turn there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. If you can't find it, it's right after Verse 11. 1 John 2.12. Now, before we jump in, let me give you just kind of three qualifiers that might help us make sense of this passage. First, John gives no instruction in this initial passage. He doesn't tell the church how to live, how to behave, and what to do. Rather, he begins by reminding them of who they are as believers in Christ. You see the pattern John has? He moves from identity to behavior. Here's who you are, now live it out. When we skip the step of identity and just demand Christian behavior, that's what leads to legalism. So John starts by reminding people in the church who they are and they're standing before him in Christ Jesus. Kind of like my coach, I played basketball at Biola for four years, I know what you're thinking. But you're short and you're white which proves only one thing, that there must be a God. <laughs> My coach is still there. He's a he still is a phenomenal coach. He would remind us of who we were as Christians and as students and players at Biola. He'd say, you're part of a tradition. This is what it means to play at Biola. This is what it means to be a student here. He wanted to ground in us our identity, and then he expected us to live it out the way we played on the court. This is essentially what John is doing. He's reminding the church of who they are in front of Christ, and then he expects us to live it out in a certain way. Second, I picture John writing this whole book with this firm yet loving grandfatherly voice. John is probably in his 90s. He's in his 90s. He's one of the last people alive who saw Jesus crucified on the cross saw him alive after the resurrection, and has spent decades growing theologically and loving and ministering to the church. 
So in preparing this, I came across a speech that Charles Spurgeon gave, a sermon. And notice what he describes. And by the way, when we look at this passage, what, what, uh, what John does is he gives instructions to three peop- groups in the church, and then he repeats it. But if you look closely, the original Greek tense changes. John first says, I am writing, and then he says, I have written. Why? Here's what Spurgeon says. He says, there's a beautiful touch of nature in this speedy change of tense. John was an extremely old man, and therefore, while he says, I write, he adds, I have written, as if he felt it might be the last time he should take his pen in hand. Therefore, he says, I write, indicating that while he, has still, he is still with them, with warm and loving heart, he solemnly exhorted them. And then he adds, I have written, as if he recorded his dying testimony and left it as his legacy of love. The third qualifier is as we were preparing for, as I was preparing for this message, I met with the pastoral staff, and even Pastor Ty and I disagreed on a few of the nuances of this passage. So I just want you to know that it's controversial, but look, it's okay. Even Pastor Ty can be wrong sometimes. <laughs> I'm sure your wife would, would not agree with that. All right, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. John starts off, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, I do think John is writing with little children in mind to a degree, but keep in mind, John uses the term little children at least 10 times throughout 1 John, speaking to the church as a whole. It's this grandfatherly voice referring to Christians as little children. There's a tenderness in his voice. But my question is, why does he start by saying your sins are forgiven for his name's sake? You know what I think it is? I think John is reminding us of our identity in Christ as people who have been forgiven. Because you know what I know is true? I really believe firmly so much of this dysfunction and hurt and anger and brokenness in our culture and in the church is a failure for us to know and experience that God and other people forgive us. And as a result, we become incapable of truly forgiving other people. Rick Warren famously said, hurt people hurt people. (laughs) Look, rarely does day go by that somebody doesn't hate on me on Twitter. I'm almost just used to it because I speak up on controversial issues. And almost every time someone insults me, I just think that person must have been deeply hurt at some point in their life to treat people like this. I saw a study years ago of people in a retirement home asked, what would they do if they lived their life again differently. One, they said they'd eat more ice cream. (laughs) Number two, they'd take more walks. Number three, they would forgive people who had hurt them decades earlier. And there were stories of people that talked about memories from elementary school. They'd carried with them these burdens and this hurt their entire life. You see what John is doing? He's saying, little children, you're forgiven. God forgives you. We follow a God of grace who forgives you. When we know that and we identify that, then we can love people and show the grace 
that God has for us. But then John goes on, verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. When I first got this, I thought, wait a minute. It says, I'm writing to you fathers. How am I going to pull this off because I'm being asked to preach on Mother's Day? Like, here we go again. Mothers get the shaft yet again. Now, I think when he, mean, when he says fathers, he means those who are older and seasoned and wise in the church. He means it in that sense. But I do think a sense where he's also kind of calling out the fathers. Because look, we don't have an epidemic of motherlessness, but we do have an epidemic of fatherlessness. Last I checked, when a child is born, correct me if I'm wrong, Pastor Ty, when a child is born, a mom is there. Did I get that one right? We've had three kids. I think I got this one down. Three for three. But a father is not always there. We have an epidemic of fatherlessness. And John is saying, wait a minute, all of us have responsibility. Moms and dads, seasoned adults in a church, the next generation. But dads, you better step up your game. So I hope the moms are looking at this going, this is a gift on Mother's Day where I'm kicking the fathers, kicking the grandfathers in the rear saying, we better step up because I'll tell you something I know is true. I know both moms and dads shape the faith of their kids unmistakably. But there is something about the father where we unintentionally, without even realizing, import upon our heavenly father our relationship and expectations of our earthly father. We all do it. We all do it. There was a study by a psychologist by the name of Paul Vitz. Grew up in a Christian home in Iowa, left his faith in the university, and then came back to the faith in his 30s. And he did a psychological study of the most influential atheists in history. People like Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, Freud, And he said they all have one thing in common. A dead, distant, or harsh father. He said, then I went and I studied Christians. And I found nothing in common. (laughs) All ages, all races, all backgrounds. He said, my conclusion is we import upon our heavenly father the way we see our earthly father. I think this is part of what John is doing. He's saying, John is saying, you fathers, you know him who's from the beginning. You know Jesus. You have experience. You have wisdom. Take responsibility for the next generation. Verse 14, he says then, right here, he says, I write to you, and he repeats it. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And then he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now, let me ask you a question. If you think about somebody who's strong, who has the word of God inside of them, and who has overcome the evil one, is the first person who comes to your mind going to be a young man or a young woman? Is it? Maybe David, maybe Joseph, but those seem to be exceptions. When we think of people who have the word of God built inside of them, who've overcome evil, we tend to think of someone who's lived a full life, and seen God's grace demonstrated over years in their life. Hence, they've overcome the evil one. But that's not what John says. He says young men. And he means young women. 
you've overcome the evil one. And I think the reason is because John is radically countercultural. Radically countercultural. See, I think we live in a culture that infantilizes young men and young women. Don't grow up any sooner than you need to. In fact, I saw a study yesterday that said millennials do not consider themselves grown-ups until they're 27. I'm not going to bag on millennials. That's not my point. Even if I did, you'd get a trophy anyways, but sorry. <laughs> I, I couldn't resist. I'm a Gen Xer. We kind of got forgotten, so I have a right to just have angst, right? Isn't that what Gen X is about, the angst? Anyways, we won't go there. It used, my son just turned 13 a few weeks ago, and I planned an entire weekend of experiences for him to try to impress upon him that he's becoming a man. You look throughout cultures of the world, at 12 and 13, there's the bar mitzvah. There's these life experiences where you can go to war at that age. Now in our culture, you don't grow up till you're 27. Besides that, in our culture, we're all victims, aren't we? You're a victim of your age, you're a victim of your background, you're a victim of your family, you're a victim of your race. We're all victims. And John is like, I'm not playing that game. He goes, young men, despite what the culture says, you have overcome the evil one. You have God inside of you, and you can do great things. That's a part of what I think John is saying here. Now, what does this tell us briefly before we move on about the church? Three things. Number one, the church is diverse. He speaks to children. He speaks to young men. He speaks to fathers. The very first philosophical question that people ever asked was called the one and the many. What brings unity in the world and what accounts for diversity? Well, the Christian answer is the character of God who's triune expressed in the church. We had the unity of Christ, but the diversity of members of all backgrounds and all races and genders, etc. The body of Christ is diverse. This is good. Second, the church is family. You notice the words that John uses. He says, father, children, young men. And Paul adds, brother. The church is not a distant academic or government institution. It's family. And third, the church is you. Every one of us are represented. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's me. All of us have something to give and contribute to the body of Christ. Now let's move on to the next passage, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we're at now. Now John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now wait a minute, time out. Isn't this the same John who in John 3, 16 said, for God so loved the world? Now he says, don't love the things in the world. In fact, if you love the things in the world, you don't even have the Father in you. Now, which is it? Maybe John's just getting older and he's okay with contradiction. That's one possibility. I don't buy it. Maybe John changed his mind. I don't buy it. Or maybe he's not contradicting himself and means something that we miss when we first read it on the surface. I think that's what's going on. See, if we want to know what he means by not loving the world, what word do we have to understand? World. So if you want to know what wor the word world means, what do you do? 
What do you do? Nope, don't look it up in a dictionary. <laughs> don't look it up in a dictionary. You know why? A dictionary will give you multiple definitions. If you want to know what a word means in Scripture, look in context, the verses before and the verses after. So if you actually look through John, he uses the word world three different ways. Number one, to refer to creation. The physical world around us, which would include us, the created world, the created universe, is the Greek term cosmos. Second, the people of the world. You and me, that's what I think he means in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world, he loves the people. Third, throw it up there for me, what he means by world are the values and beliefs of the world that are in opposition to God. Now, do you see what's going on here? In John 3, he uses definition 2. In 1 John chapter 2, which of these does he now use? Okay, this is the participatory part of the program. In 1 John 2, what does he use now? Number 3. Now, when he says don't love the world, he means the ideas and practices and beliefs that people have that are in opposition to the ways of God. This is now what he means by world. So John doesn't contradict himself. He's using the word, word world in a different sense. So he gives three ways that he means the values of the world in opposition to the ways of Christ. First one are the desires of the flesh. Desires of the flesh. Now what does this mean? I think these are cravings that come from our bodies that are fallen. Now, keep something in mind. The physical body is good. Jesus took on flesh. We've been made in God's image, but we've been tainted by sin, so our bodies have certain cravings for things like food that are good, things like sex that are good, things like comfort that are good. But when we desire to use those in a way they're not meant to be used then they become desires of the flesh. So these are things like indulgence in comfort, indulgence in sex, indulgence in food in a way that goes against God's design. That's what he means by desires of the flesh. Now the second one are desires of the eyes. So now he's talking about things that we see with the eyes and we covet and we want them. If I just had that house, if I just had that car, if I had that person or that jacket, these are things we begin to covet. So not too long ago, my wife and I were out hiking and this lady goes walking by us and she says out loud, she goes, oh, how cute. She's wearing last year's models of hiking shoes. <laughs> now, first off, I thought, I can't believe she even cares what shoes you're wearing, although I am wearing my Batman shoes, so I like shoes. But when you're hiking, who cares what model they are? Second, that she would say it loud enough for us to hear it. Somehow, and I know this feels like distant because we live in Orange County and we don't have issues with this. We are surrounded by things that we see with the eyes that are things of the world in opposition to the things of God. But then third, the pride of life. The pride of life, I think, are when we want possessions. We want power. We want prestige. We want status. 
we want title. And it's not really the position we get. It's just that the position is better than those around us. Right? I had a student come to me years ago here when I was teaching at CBCS full-time. I'm here part-time now. When I was full-time, a student came in to me and he just looked, it was during lunch break, he looked like the weight of the world was on his shoulders. He's like, Mr. McDowell, can we talk? I was like, no, it's my lunch break. No, I didn't say that. I'm just kidding. I said, of course. What's going on? He said, I don't know what to do. He said, last night, my dad told me he'd pay my way all the way through college and all the way through medical school. And then he was silent. I said, I feel like I'm missing something. That sounds like a pretty good deal. He goes, I don't want to be a doctor. I think my dad thinks it looks good for him to have a son who's a doctor. That's the pride of life. That's what's tempting. I want that power. I want that prestige. I want recognition that might not be due to me. That's what I think he means by the pride of life. So how are these in opposition to God? The worldly path says, indulge the flesh. If it feels good, do it. In fact, it's bad not to do it if it feels good. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. The worldly path says to indulge the eyes. If it looks good, take it. Jesus said, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. The world says, find your pride in what you have or what you do compared to others. Jesus said, die to yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. So why shouldn't Christians love the world? Well, we kind of answered this first because the principles of the world are in opposition to the ways of God. There's two roads, friends. There's two roads. The way of the world, which leads to destruction, and God's way, which leads to eternal life. This is what I think James, the brother of Jesus, meant in James 4.4. He said, you adulterous people, do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You realize what both John and James are saying? They're saying, church, there's two options. That's it. You have A and you have B. Now, in our modern culture, this is offensive because we like a lot of options. Any guesses how many different drink flavors, not flavors, different drinks you can get with all options at the table from Starbucks? Just guess. How many options? What do you think? 40? 50s? Anyone else? A thousand. You're getting warmer. According to the Huffington Post, over 80,000 options you can get at Starbucks. Now think about it. We have three different sizes. You can get caffeinated, half caffeinated, no caffeinated. You can get ice, no ice. You can get multiple flavors if you even want flavor. If you start adding up all the options, they've estimated between 80 and 87,000 different drinks you can get at Starbucks. When I was a kid, you remember the commercials? You ready? Taste challenge. Coke or Pepsi? <laughs> Don't you remember this? Now, of course, they had 7-Up and Dr. Pepper, but the implication was if you want a cola, you got two options. Now you got 87,000 options at Starbucks. Now we have energy drinks. 
We have fruit smoothies you can get. And now you can buy your own soda-making machine and make the soda with the exact fizz and flavor tailored just for you. Isn't that what technology does? I get to tailor life exactly to my likings and my feelings. John is like, I don't buy it. You don't have 87,000 options. You have two. The way of God or the way of the world. That's the option John lays out. And the second reason we shouldn't love the world is found in the final verse in this passage, which we're going to unpack a little bit. It says in John, 1 John 2, verse 17, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the second reason we shouldn't love the world, number one, the ways of the world are in opposition to God. Number two, because the world is passing away. It's valuing things that are temporary over that which is eternal. You see, valuing the world is like rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. That's what it means to value the world. The things of the world are worthless when compared with the infinite value of loving God and loving God's people. So if you remember back when Pastor Ty opened up this series in 1 John, the very first First passage in verse 4, it says, And we are writing these things so our joy may be complete. John is writing this so the church will have correct doctrine, stop sinning, and be in healthy relationships, not just for control, because that's where real joy comes from. Real joy comes from having a clear conscience before the Lord. Real joy comes from being in healthy relationships with other people and living the way God wants us to live. That's in contrast to the desires and pleasures of the world. John writes this book, so we think and act rightly, so we experience God's joy. Now, if he says those who, abide, who know the will of God and do it abide forever, the question we're back to is then what's the will of God? What is God's will? And how do we know it? Now, I've gone through the scriptures and found every verse I can find with Google and Logos Bible software help that talks about either God's will or the will of God. And I read them all carefully, put them into two columns, and as best as I can understand, I think the scriptures speak about the will of God in two different senses. Two senses. Number one, what I'm going to call God's sovereign will. When we say God's sovereign will, what do we mean? We mean God's decrees, his plans. God is God, and he's taken the world where he wants it to be. So God, as a sovereign, has an ultimate will for things. So, for example, if you read the book of Daniel... Much of the book of Daniel, the theme is about God's sovereignty. He is sovereign even over Nebuchadnezzar. He is sovereign even over the fires where Rack, Shack, and Benny are thrown. God is sovereign. That's the theme of the book of Daniel. He's sovereign over nations. His will will be done. So in Daniel 4.35, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to what? His 
will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, you can't stop God. He's going to do what he wants to do. God is sovereign. Another example, Romans chapter 9, verse 19. Paul says, you will, you will say to them then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And the answer Paul is saying is not, well, the really smart person, not the popular person, not the person who's articulate. When he says, who can resist his will? Who does he mean? Only Trump. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> hey, whether you like him or not, the best part is presidential humor is back. Right? I mean, you got to at least admit that. We live in interesting times. Even President Trump cannot resist his will. Trust me, Jonah tried and it didn't end up well. So when the scriptures talk about the will of God or God's will, it's talking about God's plans and decrees, his sovereign direction for where the world is going. But there's a second sense the Bible talks about God's will. It's what I'm going to call God's moral will. God's moral will. So for example, anytime a student will ask me, what's God's will? I take them immediately to 1 Thessalonians 4.3 because I don't know any passage that is more clear about what God's will is. You ready? Here's how 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says, for this is the will of God. Do you know any passage more clear than that? If you want to know God's will, go to 1 Thessalonians 4.3. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, meaning you become like Christ, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will for you and for me is that we become sanctified and more like Christ in how we live. Another example, Paul in Romans 12.2 also talks about the will of God. It says this in a passage you know. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. What's he saying? He's saying, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. We're back to what John said, the thinking and practices of this world in opposition to the ways of God. Rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you may know the things of God which are good and which are perfect. Friends, I challenge you, do a search. Read all the passages in the Bible that talk about the will of God. And either it's God's sovereign will, some of which we know, namely, that Jesus is coming back, some of which we don't know, namely, when he's coming back. Even if we knew it and marshaled all the efforts of mankind, we couldn't stop God's sovereign will. Some of it we don't know, we couldn't stop it if we did. But then the Bible talks about God's moral will, that we're sanctified, that we're purified, that we embrace not the ways of the world, but the ways of God. That's what John means by his moral will. Now, do you notice something that's conspicuous by its absence. I realize this is controversial, but I don't think the Bible teaches that God has a secret will for you about all the decisions you're supposed to make that you have to somehow uncover, like finding a hidden Easter egg or playing the game it's getting warmer before you can make a decision. I don't think Jesus or God has already decided what steps you're supposed to take 
and then you, un, you find out secretly what God's will is, and then you act it out. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I, don't think, I think the Bible talks about God's sovereign will and God's moral will. In fact, John MacArthur, the great Bible teacher, wrote an excellent book in 1973, and the title was Found, God's Will. It's a great title. And he says, God's will is that we be saved, that we believe in Jesus. Second, God's will is that we be filled with the Spirit. Third, we be sanctified. And fourth, we suffer for doing what is right. And then John MacArthur writes this. He says, okay, let me give you the final principle, but hold on to your seat. You may want to jump up and shout and feel free to. This is a Baptist church. He says, if you're doing all five of the basic things, do you know what the next principle of God's will is? Here it is. Do whatever you want. If these five principles, elements of God's will, are operating in your life, then who is running your wants? God is. See, I think God's will is less where you live, but the kind of neighbor you are. God's will is less the particular profession you choose, but the kind of worker you are. God's will is less who you marry. By the way, even if you're supposed to marry is an open question, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. But the kind of spouse or friend you are. God's will is you. God's will is you. God's will is not hidden. (laughs) We talk about God's moral will, it's not secret. We've been given two paths. And John says the question is, will we follow God's will? Which is that we follow the path of being in the light, which means turn from sin. We follow the path of understanding who Jesus is, God who's come in human flesh. And we understand God's will, which is loving one another so we can be in fellowship and we can abide in Christ. Friends, that is God's will for you. And that is God's will for me. So let me just ask you some questions as we wrap up. Is your identity first found in what God says about you? Like John who says little children, do you need to be reminded that your identity is first in who God says you are in the family of God? family of Christ. Second, have you embraced that God forgives you? If you're going to be healthy and show God's grace to others, have you experienced that and do you know that in your own life? Third, are you caught up in the ways of the world rather than the ways of God? Are you treating the world like it's not passing away, like the world is eternal, And last, are you in the will of God right now in your life? If not, what do you need to change to get there? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such clear and powerful teaching coming from the Apostle John. I pray that as we've heard these words this morning, may we be honest and reflect on our own lives before you. God, help us to know that we're forgiven. Help us to know that the word of God abides in us. Help us to resist the ways of the world and to love one another as you have called us to love. And be with us and especially the mothers 
on this special day. And we pray this in your name. Amen.